We turn again to Acts chapter 17 and the sermon of Paul at uh, Athens before the council there, the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And we come this morning to verse 26. From one man God has made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. So he begins the sermon, you'll see, by uh, telling then these learned, uh, aristocratic, pagan Europeans in Greece, by telling them about God their creator. The one true and living God, he says, doesn't need ornate temples, because he doesn't live in temples made by our hands. We don't make God happy by building a, a fabulous residence for him, so that he approves of it, and he looks and he says, very nice. We don't organize religious activities for him with lots of uh, uh, music and rituals and expense, so that God says, oh, that's very sweet of you. In the gospel, the Lord Jesus tells us that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He came to serve us. His hands were crucified for us. His uplifted hands on the hill of ascension was where they were commanding God's blessing to come down on the representatives of all his people who were there to see him as he went up to heaven. Each day we cry to God and we say, in your grace, serve me today. At home, in, in my work, with my family, with my colleagues, I'm asking you to help me to love my, my neighbors, as I love myself, serve me by increasing that love. That spirit might be in me that was also in you. Supply all my needs. Make your grace abound towards me. So that was the first thing that Paul spoke to them. A different view of God than the, the strange gods now long forgotten and no longer worshipped that they worshipped in Greece. And then he moved from speaking to them about God to speak to them about themselves. Who are we? What is man? And the men at the council of the Areopagus had no idea who they were. It's an awful thing to go through life and never to discover who you are and why you are in this world. And he explained to them that man is a creature made by God, made in the image and the likeness of God. Just as you this morning looked in the mirror and uh, brushed your hair and uh, shaved and saw the image of yourself reflected when God looked at Adam. He saw his own image reflected there. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And though that image has been distorted by our sin and the fall of our father Adam, yet uh, still there is uh, that likeness. It's still there in every single person. And so Adam was a real man. Let me begin in that way again. Why it matters to us that Adam was made by God and uh, was a real man. It makes sense of the world. Paul at the Areopagus had a better grasp of who he was and who these philosophers were and why the people in Athens behaved themselves as they did than all those philosophers that he was speaking to, those followers of Socrates and Plato, the Stoics, 
and the Epicureans that were sitting there in their togas, two dozen of them or so, looking very disdainfully at him. Paul was able to tell them who they were and where they came from and who was their first ancestor in their family tree and why people then behave as they do. The Christian knows from Scripture these things. That's why one of the reasons why God has given us the book that uh, we learn there was a good beginning and it was marred by a fall. And redemption is the intrusion of the grace of God through Jesus Christ in the gospel message. And so that gospel message then, as it's being preached and lived in the world today, both in the gatherings and then as Christians go out, that affects the world in which we live. So that those who are joined to Jesus Christ become the salt of the earth and stop the rottenness spreading, the decay, the putrefaction. And they are the light of the world, so they shine you in your small corner and I in mine. And as men like uh, Paul go, and millions of them are now engaged in preaching the word of God and millions more in the congregations sharing and learning and doing what the Bible says. So the world hears of Jesus Christ the last Adam, the hope of the world, the light of the world. And this is then the great prevention that God has given to the world to stop the, the rottenness that we see outbursts of where that gospel isn't known and loved. And we see the horrors that there is. And uh, we then have hope for the future. We know where we're going, don't we? We don't need uh, expert so-called futurologists to tell us. We don't uh, read our horoscopes. We don't go to creepy fortune tellers and mediums. We know that the world is going for a glorious consummation. That there will be a day when the last trump will sound and he will come and all his holy angels with him. And he will give the command and the dead will be raised. And there will be the great white throne and all of us must appear before it. Uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, men and women. There's no escape from that. And there will be uh, the regeneration of the universe and a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be the great separation. And there will be the eternal state of heaven and hell. And that's what lies ahead. That's your future. You hear a few brief years and then it is all over. By Adam, sin came into the world. It wasn't by God sin came into the world. It was through Adam. But grace came by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So the creation of man uh, makes sense of the world that we live in. And then it makes sense also of the message of the gospel. Because Adam... And sin are conjoined like Siamese twins. If you deny Adam, then you deny sin. And that is why then the word sin is never heard today. It's never heard anywhere by um, educationalists or politicians. By psychiatrists, uh, you don't hear the word. It's an alien word. It's an unwanted word. It's an a non-politically correct word. 
And Adam, we are told, was the door by which sin entered the world. Uh, And atonement by Jesus Christ, he is the door, he is the way by which deliverance and redemption come to us. Um, Much of what's going on in our world today is only explicable. If you see that, because um, we've never been so well off in Wales as we are today, never such prosperity, never such uh, educational opportunities, never such long lives as today, and yet a, a, a vacuum in the heart of men, a darkness, a depression, evidenced in the Uh, tablets that men take and the drink and the nicotine and the drugs that they go to because their hearts are empty of the living God. In Genesis 3, then God speaks to the serpent. Listen on in now, Adam. Listen on in, Eve, as I speak to the serpent. Your head will be crushed. He will come, the seed of the woman, and he will destroy you. Are you hearing what God spoke to the serpent About this, you are naked now and you are ashamed now. But I will clothe you in skins. You are a dying people. Ah, your bodies continue to live. Your heart is beating. There's electrical activity in your brain. Your lungs are taking in air. Your limbs are moving. But all the life of your spirits, the life of your heart, is dead and hard. It's been extinguished. Fellowship with God is broken. In God's sight, your heart looks like an old prune. Your eyes are blind to God's glory. Your, your souls are mini Saharas, devoid of life that you should be enjoying. That's why Jesus came, that we might have life and might have an abundance of life, not living at this crippling, limping rate that you are spending your lives in living. And your only hope, God says, is in my son. It's in the Savior who's come into the world, who saves his people from their sins by his redemption and his propitiation and his cleansing and his justification. The creation and the fall of man and the coming then of the last Adam makes sense of the gospel. And then also, Adam being a real man, it makes sense of the truthfulness and the authority of Scripture. Because it is not simply in Genesis 2 and 3 that you meet Adam. You meet him in Job, and you meet him in the book of Psalms, and the prophets refer to him, and Jesus refers to him, and uh, Paul refers to him, and Peter refers to Adam. And when you speak to people and you tell them then the conversation comes around and you, you say you believe the Bible, they'll bound to say to you, you don't believe in Adam, do you? And you say, you mean you don't? In other words, you take the initiative and you tell them that the infallible Lord Jesus Christ, he did believe in Adam. And you're not so smart as to think you know better than Jesus Christ. For 
you he can say nothing wrong. In him he hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if he believed in Adam, then you're going to believe in him too. Because you live, your life is really worshipping Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. You do what he does, you believe what he teaches, you are his follower and you know he has given authorized messengers, uh, Moses and uh, Samuel and David and the prophets and Matthew, Mark and Luke and John and Peter and and Paul and Jude and James. uh, They are his plenipotentiaries, his his speakers with authority and you, you believe them, they tell you there was Adam. They say, there was the first man. They tell you. You not to be like that king who heard the word of God preached to him and he took the scroll and he cut out with a penknife that part which he didn't like and he threw it in a fire pot and he gave it back to the man and the man read more and he snatched it from him and he cut a piece and he threw it and he burned it because he didn't agree with what scripture taught. You don't want to be like him. To be smarter than God That's human rebellion, isn't it? And also then, um, it makes sense, Adam the first man makes sense of the various races of the world. The Greeks then, they thought they were the greatest nation in the world. They scorned their slaves. Their slaves came from inferior nations. They prized their horses higher than them. Servants were inferior and women had no rights. And I presume Paul picked this up as he then saw how slaves were treated and uh, the slave market that was there, not far from where he was preaching in the marketplace and the awful scenes that he saw, the heartbreak that was there because they were just chattels. They were like machines to help you around the house and so on. He told these, these skilled aristocrats that all of us, slaves, servants, men, women, children, handicapped people, all of us were descended from one man, one father. We have a common father. My father, Adam, my mother, Eve. He told them this. And uh, soon he used to tell them that they all needed to be saved by the last Adam. Your slaves and yourselves by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You who are so wise and leaders in the community, uh, the watch committee that say what preaching can go on and what preaching must be silent. He was telling these Greeks they didn't belong to some imaginary pure bloodline. He was affirming to them there's no master race. In fact, you can't understand who you are. And what it is to be a certain individual, unless you know my God, the God and Father of our Savior Jesus Christ. You can't understand your role in life. You can't understand the future unless you know Jesus Christ as God and Lord. And the blood of Jesus Christ is the only way that we can come to our Creators. And matter how poor or slave-like you are, doesn't matter how aristocratic and wealthy and intelligent you may be. God has designed one way for us to be reconciled to him. And that's by 
the life and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come together, we join together in him. That's the only way we can be reconciled. God has designed it for every ethnic group in the world. That we are individually reconciled as we come just as we are. and We trust in him. Here I am, Lord. I've got little to offer you. I've made a mess of my life so far. I'm so sorry. I want to change. I know resolutions don't last. I make one every January the 1st and it lasts until January the 2nd. I, I don't want to make resolutions. I want to come now. and I want to put myself in, in your hands. I want you with me. And when the devil says, it's too late. You're too far gone. Don't you listen to him. We're not ignorant of his devices. You come and you entrust yourself. Do it today. You do it this morning. You do it now. You entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. It is by him that hostility is removed between God and us. God has propitiated his anger at the contemptible things that we have done. His anger towards us has been appeased. It's been propitiated by the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. And so the hostility is removed. And your hostility between, towards the person who hurt you and yours, you can be forgiving. You can be gracious. You can pardon. You can forgive. If you've been forgiven so much by this mercy and pity of a sin-hating God through his son suffering as he did well you you've suffered but you can find grace to forgive you can find that don't allow then an, an atom of pride to remain in your heart it's a stench in the nostrils of God you ask for the blood of Jesus Christ to wash you Heard you make you a clean boy and a clean girl to do that. There is therefore now no Jew or Gentile. It is not that there is a man far superior to a woman or an adult to a child. That no longer exists. We are one when we come just as we are in Christ Jesus. We are one. We are on the same level. Every race. Every group, every strata of society, there's no nobility. There's no house of lords and commoners in the church of Jesus Christ. We sit together, we are one in the church of Jesus Christ. And the historicity of Adam teaches us that. Let me move on to another point here now. About interracial marriage. It's perfectly acceptable. You know that. There are no grounds at all for Christians opposing interracial marriage. You've heard of the arguments, haven't you? Um, that races are God's will and amalgamating them is against his will. That's wrong. When God separated the peoples at the Tower of Babel, it was by language. It was not by race. Racial distinctions came later. This passage doesn't teach that uh, we can't learn one another's languages and we can't marry people from other races. The passage in Babel is saying, don't conspire against God. Don't think that you can 
that you can cross the ontological distinction between God and man, that you can blur the difference between the creator and his creature. God separating people doesn't mean then that uh, there should be no coming together. And we shouldn't seek to come together by every way and come together in marriage. And again, we're told one of the arguments against interracial marriage is that God forbade the Jews from marrying other races. Well, he did, but it wasn't for racial reasons. It was for moral reasons and religious reasons and spiritual reasons because they would be contaminated and compromised by Moloch and Baal and the horrible things that those gods and their followers did. The only marriage constraint upon us is this. One, men should marry women. And two, that Christian men should marry Christian women. Those are the only constraints that are laid upon us, that are unyielding in the word of God. There's nothing about not marrying someone from another nation or another race. And thirdly, we're told there was a curse on Ham, the son of Noah. And from him, the black race came wrong again. The curse was on Canaan, on Ham's son, not on Ham. Canaan was not the father of the black race. And even if uh, a particular city or tribe was cursed in the Old Testament dispensation, well, what God does is no mandate for what what I'm to do. What my responsibility is, God's commands are not commands to us to treat any cursed people badly. And anyway, who would be a cursed people today? Do they exist today? I don't think the history of redemption teaches that. We are to love our enemies and we are to overcome their evil with our good. And fourthly, interracial marriage tends towards the lessening of diversity that God intended. Wrong again. It would carry weight if there was some real possibility that interracial marriage resulted in diminished diversity. But in fact, it increases the beautiful diversity. A Korean and uh, an English girl marrying are saying, we are united about the big things in life. We have united convictions and united desires and values. We agree about how we are to raise our children and how we are to spend our time and our money and about speaking two languages from now on. Any biological differences between us, they are trivial. And that's completely true. If you are opposing interracial marriages, then you are saying races are not relationally equal, socially equal, that one race is inferior to another. You cannot find that. You can only find that in the depth of racial prejudice. Nations, races are simply different. And again, Uh, The final argument is that cultural differences make interrelation marriage wrong because the couple would be incompatible. Wrong again. (laughs) We should base uh, compatibility on the facts of the situation, not on the color of the people. There are many same race 
couples and they are totally incompatible. And the marriages founder and break and they drift apart because the issue is not race. It is rarely race. The issues that cause division are about spiritual convictions and common convictions and moral and ethical harmony and the expectations that any, any couple have. I want to say now that God deals with nations as nations still. Just as God deals with individuals and God deals with families and God deals with congregations and sees the uniqueness of them and is patient and tender and warning and encouraging uh, according to the, the wonderful counselor, this great pastor we have at heaven who deals with us according to our needs. He deals with nations also in that way. Jesus often spoke about nations. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. There are some nations that have unofficial, legal, political contempt for followers of Jesus Christ, and they are punished because they love the Lord and they would meet together on the first day of the week. Matthew 24 and verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Matthew 25 and verse 32. And before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And then Matthew 28, the passage that we read. Go into the world and teach all nations. Teach all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And Mark 11 and verse 17. And he taught saying to them, Isn't it written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. You read of, uh, in the New Testament of the evaluation and the judgments that God makes on nations. You read it in the book of Revelation. You read it in the writings of Paul. He looks at the Isle of Crete and falsehood and deceit was endemic to the whole culture of the people who lived on, on Crete. And Paul says all Cretans are liars because that was a, a particular weakness of that nation. Now, we are under obligation to respect men and women from every nation. We despise racism as much as any school teacher in a state school or politician despises it. We do not believe that there is one race or nation that's superior to others and that others are inferior. We think of how that foul heresy gripped a mighty country like Germany. And they thought they could load a race, the Jewish race, men, women, and children, onto cattle trucks. They were all made in the image of God. They bore the same image as the, their tormenting neighbors. And they took them off to gas them and incinerate them. Think of the anti 
Jewish hatred among some of the Arab nations today, they applaud the Holocaust. They would launch another one if they could. Think of the racism of Boko Haram and their hostility to girls having an education. You think of racist organizations in Britain that admire the hateful Ku Klux Klan. I can't see how anyone whose trust is in Jesus Christ can belong to white supremacist organizations. You have to choose. Any of you who are tempted in that way, you have to choose between a gospel church and that. You can't be a member of both. You're welcome to come to our services. You need to hear the word of God. But you can't be a member of a racist organization and a member of a gospel church. You can't. It's, it's utterly unacceptable. You need to mortify that pride and that superiority. You need to do it. If it's in anyone, I don't know if it's in anyone here. I'm not getting at anyone in particular here. I don't know if any of you do. But it's wrong. And we say that. And that's our message. You know, we in Wales, we live uh, under the shadow of our great uh, powerful cousins across uh, the dike there in England. And we Christians are very careful about how we speak about the English. We're, we're Welsh, aren't we? And we love the English. And we love so much of the history of their great men. John Wycliffe, the Yorkshireman, the morning star of the Reformation, the translator of the Bible, the man who believed that the Bible was the only authoritative guide as to what we believed. You know how his body was burned and his ashes were cast into the river. And oh, what a man he was. William Tyndale, the Luther of England, the translator of the scriptures into English. What a giant. Oh, that he were Welsh. And then his successors, Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer and Rogers and Hooper and Bradford. What English martyrs they were. And then in the next generation, the next century, there was John Bunyan and John Owen, Richard Baxter, Thomas Brooks, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Manton, giants, and hundreds and hundreds like them. Oh, that we had many more of them in Wales at that time. And then the next century, George Whitfield, John then, John Wesley, Henry then, William Bradshaw, Grimshaw, and Berridge. And then the 19th century, you come to the forerunners of the missionary movement. You come to William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Patton and Spurgeon and Ryle. We love the blessings that God has poured out upon the English for half a millennium. Our eternal brothers and they've been such a benediction to us in Wales. God made every nation of men. God made them. Made them the men they were. And there are times... And there are periods when God favors a nation. But also God can withhold his blessings from nations. He can do that. God can send leanness upon a nation. And we fear in the United Kingdom and in Wales, leanness is being poured out upon us in these dark days. Think of what a mighty nation like Germany in the last century, what God did to that nation in humbling that nation. 
Only in Jesus Christ is there deliverance from our pride in our history and our nationality. And so God is involved in nations. You know how the strange way the New Testament begins. How it begins with a genealogy of a hundred names difficult to pronounce, aren't they? And some societies are very impressed and are greatly helped by that fact. They nod their heads soberly. The genealogy in Luke's gospel, it goes back to his parents and his grandparents and back and back it goes. It goes back finally to Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. And people read it and they say, ah, this is not a Welsh history. This is not a British history, a European history. This is not the history of the white race. It is not somebody else's story. This is my story and my history. It tells me about my ancestry in Adam. And I can trust it when it tells me of the last Adam and when it tells me about my destiny through Jesus Christ. There is no place for believing that some, some nations have got superior bloodlines while others have inferior bloodlines. We are all one family, my brother and my sister and me. We all have our common origin in our father, Adam, and he is offered as the saviour of all men the day of Pentecost. They are all told to repent. 3,000 of them from all those nations come to one man, to one Jesus. And they find forgiveness in him. It was the most breathtaking discovery that the Jews could make. It almost shattered and fractured the early church. That God could love the Romans and the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. He could love them with the same love wherewith he loved them. That the middle wall of partition had been broken down. And Peter found it very hard to believe. And needed a public exhortation from Paul. Not to think of the Gentile brothers and sisters as second class at all. One father and one redeemer. The first and last Adam. And we're told in this passage that Paul told them God has set a time and a place for each nation. They thought they were the greatest. They thought there was no nation like them. Look at their history. Look at 500 years ago. And look at what they'd achieved. Look at Socrates. and uh, Look at Plato. Look at their victory over the Persians. The little 300 that defeated the, the great army and they bragged. And Paul said, God has determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's what he says, verse 26. The triumph over Persia, God determined that they would win. And then the next century, when there was the horrible civil war that destroyed Greek harmony and Sparta and Athens, fought an atrocious war against one another, determined by God, the humblings of nations, all in God's hand. It's not that God has looked away for a moment and the devil is in control and the devil brings these humiliations into nations. Moses says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, 
he set up boundaries for the peoples. And to humble, proud Nebuchadnezzar, so that he lost his reason, God said to him, This is until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Our history, the history of Scotland, history of Ireland, history of England, history of the Netherlands, history of America, history of South America, history of Nigeria. You know you come from these countries, don't you? Here I know you this morning, your history. God's been in control. And God has been in charge of your history. So that he is determined on this Sunday morning, this very day, this very moment, you should be gathered with his people around the word of God and listening to how great God is, that God has done all these great things for you. Not chance. Not lucky that you're here or bad luck that you're here. A living God. Our breath is in his hands. We live and move and have our being in him. And our times, the swinging 60s, the naughty 20s, the desperate wars, recession, boom and bust, the times, God sets the times for every nation. Time to plant, time to uproot, time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain, a time to search, and a time to give way, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What's the time in Wales today? What is the time? Do you know the time? Do you, do you go to the God's great clock and see the time and judge the time for our land and for our future? Oh, I pray it's a time to plant and a time to build and a time to keep and a time to love and a time for peace. Our times are in God's hands. Your time. What's happened so far in that, this life that's shooting by? God, God in control of your time. And the exact places of the nations. Empire building, empire contraction. Governments must recognize this. Why is it that the British Parliament meets every morning for Bible reading and prayer? That's how it starts. Welsh Assembly doesn't meet and has Bible reading and prayer every morning, but the English Parliament does because there is some recognition that God is in control of the nation, that God is dealing with our nation and its leaders. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How easily those words slip off our tongues, don't they? And we're talking about absolute reality. We phantoms. We live a little and we're dead. 
He is from eternity to eternity. The vast, the mighty controller, the God of providence. The God of our lives. Oh, may you know him. May you know him. Lord, do bless your word to us today then. Show us yourself. Show us who we are. Teach us of our origin and our fall in Adam and our deliverance in Jesus Christ. Teach our nation these things, how they are to live, how they can be saved. Grant that in thy mercy, almighty God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.